How many of you got an iPad already? You liking it? That's very good. That's good. I'm waiting until it comes out on video. Then I'll do that. The old adage is so true. The only thing for certain in life is change. Everything changes. The seasons change from winter to this great spring to summer, back to the fall. Biological life changes. Little puppies become dogs and... Tadpoles become frogs, eggs hatch into eagles. But what about homo sapiens here, you and me, people? How much do we really change? The news is always filled with people who break bad, people who are good who go bad. But can bad people go good? And when they do, what are other people's response to them? We have a look at that with our drama. Watch this. appreciate the kind words, but I don't think much about God these days. Well, he thinks about you all the time. Believe me. Look, you said you had information about my husband's killer. I do. Are you a detective? I'm familiar with his situation. So they caught him? No. But it's safe to say that he's gone for good. I hope so lives that man took. He took a lot. He called himself the exterminator, ridding the world of vermin. He killed without pause or regret. God had other plans for him. No one knows exactly what ran him off the road why he went blind from the crash, but the voice ringing in his head demanded more of him. He was being recruited. What do you mean, recruited? Well, to switch sides, to go help the people that he had worked so hard to destroy. And you believe that? <laughs> Not at first. He had a long road ahead of him. Nobody just walks away from the boss like that. You cross that line, you're a hunted man. He had to change his name, burn every piece of his old life. He spent years rebuilding himself. The scariest part of that journey is just beginning. Because if he's going to show God's love to the people who need it the most, he has to start with the ones he hurt. So I'm here today to say, I'm sorry. I'm a different man now. What do you want from me? Just your forgiveness. And to pass on what's been given to me. Get out. Trust me, I know. Trust you. There is no way on this earth I would trust you. I don't even want Just get out. I said get out of here. The challenge with talking about 
Paul's conversion is over the millennium. We have so made him into a stained glass picture in a one-dimensional thing that we forget the radicalness of Saul of Tarsus becoming the Apostle Paul. He was by far the greatest persecutor of the church because he loved the law, he loved God so much. It is the most famous conversion of all time. It was not allowed under most of the caliphs of the Ottoman Empire to read the book of Acts. You could read the Gospels, but never let you read Paul's story. In fact, one sultan read it, was converted, and they executed him. My father was in a submarine in World War II in the South Pacific, and someone gave him a story of Paul's conversion. He read it, gave his life to Christ, and after the war became a pastor. What's so powerful about Paul's story? As it's not a normal conversion story at all. But here you have this guy who is this great hater of the church, giving everything that he can to try to stop this. He meets the resurrected Christ, he's blinded for three days, baptized and becomes the greatest missionary that maybe the world has seen. There is no such thing as a boring testimony. I have never heard a boring testimony in my life. It is fascinating. Every one of us here in this room, how the Lord came real to you. And if he hasn't, I pray that he does before uh, lunch. But finding that out, because God is unique in all ways. Uh, someone told me, Mark, I've never heard you give a boring sermon, but that was really close. But uh, when you take a look at Paul's conversion, you and I, though our lives were not as dramatic, have the same seeds in all of us. And Luke in this great writing, Luke is such a good writer, he tells the story of Saul's conversion in a three-act scene. Scene one, Saul the defiant zealot. Scene two, Saul the defeated blind man. And scene three, Saul the delivered and transformed apostle. All in these few passages. And you and I, as we follow the Lord, this rebirth experience is not easy. And all of us being born again is not an easy process. As C.S. Lewis said, it's hard for a chicken to hatch, but it's a lot harder for an egg to fly. And you and I, if we're going to follow the Lord and to be born again, again, if you will, this is a great story to read. If you've got your Bible, let's take a look at the beginning of it. Turn with me over to the seventh chapter on page 891, verse 54, the beginning of this, the zealot by the name of Paul. He's actually Saul, the rabbi Saul of Tarsus. Eight weeks ago when we were going through the book of Acts, remember we came to this passage of where Stephen, the first martyr of the church, he was a busboy. And he was brilliantly, he stands in front of his accusers and he reminds them of this. He reviews the Old Testament, the Tanakh in totalness. And he tells them, you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're at, and you really don't know where you're going. And then in verse 54, when they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Pause, I think if he would have just shut up there, they wouldn't have killed him. But he sees, he breaks this time-space dimension, and he sees Jesus standing there. Verse 57. But they covered their ears, and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. And they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he died. 
And Saul approved of their killing him. That day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. These first followers of Jesus didn't believe in him because they found an empty tomb or an empty cross and they couldn't find his body. They were followers because they met the risen, breathing Christ who came after them for those 40 days that we're alive right now. We're celebrating in Eastertide. And God didn't want to just forgive their sins. He wanted to get a new life in them. Just like in the Old Testament, he didn't just get them out of slavery in Egypt. He took them to the promised land. Just like Jesus with the demoniac, the Gadarene, he didn't just cast the demons out, but it said they found him clothed in his right mind. God doesn't want to just forgive us and so we can go to heaven. He wants to get heaven in us now by the Spirit of God. And so they were, these Christians, well, they're Jews at this time. They're all Jews, and they're saying Jesus is the Messiah. And Saul knows you can't have the old and have the new. The new has got to be rubbed out. The Torah, the Tanakh, the Talmud, the teaching of God, he loved the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was devoted to this. Some people just say, well, they're crazy. Saul went, no way. We are putting an end to this heresy, to this blasphemy, to this nonsense. And he is going and pulling on them. Now, Jesus throws like a boomerang. The harder you throw it, the harder he comes back. (laughs) And Saul is pushing against Christ, and he's going to come back in a new way. Notice the first thing I think that started to touch Saul's heart, his enemy, Stephen. He watches how Stephen dies, and some of the brilliance of Saul. Saul, you know, we throw around the word genius a lot. There are geniuses, certainly. Mozart, Einstein, Beethoven. I think of myself, but you know, there are (laughs) geniuses. Saul of Tarsus, we know he speaks at least five different languages, we can tell from this. He is being groomed, he's taught by Gamaliel, who was like the Aristotle of Judaism of the first century. He came from an extremely wealthy family. His father bought a Roman citizenship, so he was born both a Hebrew of Hebrews and a Roman citizen. This guy's groomed for the number one spot in the corporation, and he knows this has got to come to an end. But his enemies teach him. Remember this, you and I can learn from our enemies. That doesn't mean you enable them or agree with them or condone, but Paul will say consider all people better than yourself. He doesn't mean that they're better at things than you are, but everybody has something to teach you and me, even when they do things that are wrong. One of my favorite uh, articles came from the Houston Chronicle, this, gee, back in the 80s, that a guy was looking for a used car and he saw this 1970 restored Porsche for $2,500. He thought it must be a typo or something, so he went over just for, you know, the heck of it, and there's this beautiful, restored Porsche. And he says, "Uh, how much is that? She said, $2,500. He said, so it doesn't run, huh? It's just the body. She said, no, it runs. Take the keys. He took it. He fired that thing up, went around the block, came back. He said, went up to the lady. He said, lady, uh, how much is it? She said, $2,500. He said, what's the catch? She said, no catch. He said, do you know what this car's worth? She said, $2,500. So he wrote her the check and handed it to her, and he said, I don't get it. She said, well, 
My husband just ran off with the secretary a month ago, told me to sell his car and send him the money. So I'm doing that, you know? <laughs> Values change, and you think, wow. Saul here is going along, and his enemies are teaching him something. So he is ravaging the church, but he notices how they go down. By the way, being put in prison is not like being put in the county down here. You think it's tough here up at Pelican Bay, drug lord central here in L.A. The prisons of the first century of Romans, odds are you never lived to get to court because they were so tough. So when he's throwing them in to prison, this isn't they're just having a bad hair day. And notice, the closer Saul gets to the truth, the harder he fights. Now, Don't forget this about your family and your friends. The closer they get to bending the knee to Christ, they're going to wing out all the harder. Because when they get close to the Lord, the demonic forces literally start whispering into their ear. You praying for a family member or a friend, looks like they're going more for hell than heaven. Great. I'm serious about that. Because they're going to fight all the harder. Anybody in military doctrine will tell you a beachhead you measure in success by inches. Why? Because the enemy knows the moment you get a foothold, it's the beginning of their end. And they will throw everything they've got to not allow a beachhead. Why do you think it's so hard to try to make L.A. the greatest city for Christ? I've often thought we should try to make Barstow the greatest city for Christ. Because you change this city, you change this culture. You change America's culture, you change the world. Ain't no way evil's just going to say, go ahead. And the, I notice it's starting to get a lot more resistance as the excitement from other churches. I was at a fundraising dinner last night for our preschool, great Persian family, all Persian, no, no Christian a lot, Muslim, Jewish, some Baha'i. And we're, they said, so you guys, this church, we hear about you're trying to get all the Christians together and stuff, and you're even, you're even talking like to the synagogues and the mosques. And I said, yeah. And one of them kind of said, well, you better back off. And I said, no, can't do it, can't do it. I've made a living out of making enemies my entire life. You and I shouldn't make enemies out of our obnoxiousness sake or our self-centeredness or our stupidity's sake. But you stand for Christ, and you stand for what it teaches. Do not expect the world to applaud. The good thing is, though, the closer they get, the more they fight. And the more you're pushing back, the more you're getting real change take place. And this is taking place in here. I mean, we, is, there's an outrage of intolerance of others. And I admit, there are some flat-out bigots in the church. Incredibly stupid men and women that are bigoted, that doesn't honor God. But what about the world's hatred of the church? My spiritual father, Eliezer Erbach, was a Polish Jew who all of his family was destroyed by the Nazis. He escaped with his brother to the Soviet Union. His brother died in his arms in a gulag. And he went to fight for the birth of Israel. He went to Brazil after that. And two Presbyterian ministers introduced him that Jesus was the Messiah. And he became a Messianic Jew. I'll never forget watching a film of him. This is back in Denver. And the rabbinic council there. And he was talking about things and this one rabbi said to him you are no longer a Jew and Eleazar just showed his scars and said to Hitler I was a Jew just because Yeshua is the Messiah doesn't mean I'm not a Jew anymore and why this anger why doesn't the world if we really are nutty and we just have an invisible friend in the sky 
Why would they care what we do? Well, the reason why is because the Spirit of God is knocking on their heart all the time. And it's getting closer all the time. So expect them to flip out. So the first scene, the defiant one. Chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he might find any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Pause. Now, for him to be given extradition power by Rome, oh, my goodness. He's going to another country to arrest people in another jurisdiction. Now, Rome allowed some of the Jewish leaders in the certain places that they behaved, but that they gave this guy this power, he is way up there in authority and trust. And he's on the way. He's hunting these dogs down, these Christians, Actually, they're called the way right here. They're not called Christianoi until they're in Antioch. He's hunting down these followers of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Along the way. Verse 3. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He said, who are you, Lord? By the way, if a big light knocks you to the ground, Lord is a good response. <laughs> it doesn't mean necessarily the Lord, it means sir, sir, uh, yes, who are you, sir? And he said, and this rocked his world, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. We don't have a thing that Paul ever said, a word or Saul against Jesus recorded. He couldn't stand the church. How you treat the church is how you treat Jesus. I don't mean the bureaucracy. I don't mean the institution. I don't mean the crazies. How you and I treat Christ's body, the church, is how we treat Jesus. He said it. I didn't. So he said, get up and go. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Scene one, Saul the defiant zealot. Bang! Literally gets knocked off his horse, Saul the defeated blind man. The irony, the crime is the punishment. He rejects the light of truth, and so he becomes blinded. And I think that Christ. This is about three years after Jesus' ascension. The risen Christ in all of his glory is so reading, and Paul will have trouble with his eyes the rest of his life. But he hears, and he's knocked to the ground. This is not exactly raise your hand in a worship service to come find Jesus. And bang! Pops him, knocks him to the ground. He says, who are you? He says, Jesus. And he can't see. And here they lead this brilliant, tough, mean hombre, genius of a guy, by hand blind to Damascus. And for three days, he sits there. Do you know what he's thinking? He's picturing the women and children screaming as they were drug off. He's picturing Stephen's cold, bloody corpse in front of him. And he's thinking, how could I be so wrong? How can this be? And now God is coming to him and saying, I don't want you to change your mind. I want you. God didn't want to punish Saul. He wanted to transform him. Imagine what that sounds like to hear the risen Christ. I can't wait till when we get there and we finally hear 
the creator of sound and space itself. I've only talked to one person, he's now dead, who heard an atomic weapon. After the Korean War, do you know out here by Nevada, as well as in White Sands in New Mexico, they used to get troops there to stand and watch atomic warheads go off and to see how they could stand it. They didn't know they were nuking these poor guys. But he said the sound of an atomic weapon is not like, and he had been in on those big battleships in the South Pacific, island hopping, the huge sounds of those guns, but he said, it's like the very molecules themselves are ripping. Because they are. And here and there's a huge light flash, and then it goes dark because it sucks up all the light, and then the light again. And that's what's happening to Saul as he's riding along the Creator. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you? I'm Jesus. Now you get up and I'll tell you what to do. God, and remember this, you and I, we either learn to bend our knees forward or they will bend backward, but we're going down. I remember from school, you learn to swallow your pride or you swallow your teeth. You choose which one goes down easier. God isn't here. He doesn't want our applause. Yay, God. He doesn't want our way to go. He wants you and me. When Wellington outmaneuvered Napoleon, and Napoleon had some of the greatest troops Europe had ever seen, he decimated all of Europe, and even to, if he hadn't hit that winter outside of Moscow. And when brilliantly Wellington outmaneuvered him and outflanked him, and at the end when he came up, and these were the crack French troops, when Wellington came riding up and they realized they had been defeated, they started to applaud this brilliant conquering general, and Wellington came riding up and he said, gentlemen, this is a surrender. Put down your weapon. You are conquered. I don't want your applause. You're done. Put them down. And God doesn't want you and I to say, we love you, we love you, I'm going to go ahead. He's saying unconditional surrender. It's a fight for, out of love for our hearts. And so this is what's happening to Saul. Final scene, verse 10. Saul, the delivered, transformed apostle. This is one of the great stories in the Bible. This is a funny scene. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. This is, by the way, this is not the Ananias who lied about his pledge card and God killed him, which I like to bring up every week. But anyway, that, uh, <laughs> there's a different Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke his name. This is great. Ananias is in prayer, and the Lord says, Ananias, go over to the street off of Sepulveda there. There's a guy named Saul of Tarsus. He knows you're coming. You pray for him. And Ananias waves it off. He goes, uh, Lord, you've, you've pulled the wrong file. <laughs> Do you know who this guy is? No doubt the Lord's going, no, tell me, Ananias, go ahead. <laughs> How often do you and I do that? The Lord tells us to do something. We go, Lord, you, you, close, no cigar, Lord. You're off on this one. This so-and-so, there's no way by loving and caring for her, for him, that you could ever use them. There's no way you want me to do that. God, if you really want to get ahead, just let me decide. And God says to Ananias these haunting words. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go. 
He is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Threefold call of Saul to take God's name to leadership of Gentiles and Jews and how much he must suffer for my name's sake. It's part of the call. And no one will suffer like Paul. He who afflicted the Christians now will suffer unbelievably for them. Not because God is punitive, but because the guy is that tough. And he's that tough because he says, I boast in my weaknesses, I look to the Lord. As obnoxious and driven as he was against God, so he will be for God. And you and I, we got zeal for the truth and for standing for morality and standing for what is right, and that is good, have zeal. But when you fire up all those engines, be very careful. Sometimes in our zeal, we're working, doing such good things for God, we're actually working against him. And God has to bring Saul around to this point where he can bend the knee. And the Lord will tell him and use him in incredible ways. So he tells him to go. This is funny here, verse 17. So Ananias went and entered the house. I think in my, he comes walking in, and he sees... Osama bin Laden, standing there. And God has just said, I'm going to use Osama bin Laden. This is a Christian. And gritting through his teeth, I think he said, Brother Saul. <laughs> the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, he hasn't ate for three days. He's sitting there in darkness going, how could I be so wrong? What do I do? First thing that happens when he regains his sight, does he eat? No. He's baptized into the name of the, his sworn enemy. This is the strength of Saul. He was not infallible, as I said. He was certainly not sinless. He was a man like you and me, but he was so sold out to Christ. And you and I, we don't have to be perfect and sinless, but now he realized, as he's sitting there in darkness, Jesus was crucified on a cross. God said in the Old Testament, whatever's on a cross, on wood, hanging there, is cursed. How could the Messiah be cursed? And then it dawns on him. And he does the brewer salute. He says he was cursed for me. How can that be? And he begins to realize this God whom he loved has pursued him and loved him and now is forgiving him and is going to use him and he's made a breach in the wall. And the young prince of life is saying to him as to us, the breach in the wall, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And I always remind us, no one's attacked by a gate. We're not supposed to be afraid. We're supposed to be taking it to them. And the prince is saying, follow us into this city and to tell them this love. You love the poor. You help them. You give them food. You put clothes on them. You educate. The, your enemies, you don't encourage the wrong that they're doing, but you love and forgive them. And you tell them about me. That's why you're here. And the meter is running. This, this struggle is not going to be forever. 
And in the meantime, we got one bullet to shoot, you and me, it's called our life, and we're to follow him. And now he realizes that he is loved by Christ, not on the basis of what he has done. Paul, to me, is more evidence for Jesus being alive than any of the gospel narratives. I believe the gospel narratives, because something had to start the church. They didn't want to. How do you explain a man who hated the church, maybe sympathy, but a man with sympathy doesn't all of a sudden say, the law is gone. It's gone. Gentiles, the goyim, and he will love his cross-racial people more than anybody, are now one with us. There's not Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, the great prayer of Hillel, but we are all one in Christ. How do you come up with that? How do you have a guy who's a Pharisee of Pharisees say, I'll take another ham sandwich? (laughs) How's he come up with that? Because he said he met the risen Christ. That's how it told him about that. It's one thing if he would have felt bad for killing Christians and said, let him alone. But to change his entire outlook, this guy, there's only one explanation. Jesus is alive. And now he knows he's loved not on what he does, but because God is loved. Last week I got to spend a day with uh, my uh, granddaughter again, and um, she's about one, just starting to walk. And I remember I forgot about this with my kids that when they're real little, whatever they do, you good. Her name's Kaylee. Yay, Kaylee! Almost walking. Yay! I thought back. You know, I wonder. I don't remember the day I first walked, but I wonder when my was stumpy little legs. You know, and they haven't grown much since then. But as I as I was. Going along, and my parents are going, yay, Mark, when I finally did it, and picked me up and went, good, Mark. But you know, after a while, they don't compliment you for walking anymore. (laughs) So you go on to some new stuff. You dress yourself. Yay! You know, I dressed myself today, and Carolyn didn't say one thing, you know? (laughs) And so you go on to new things. You try to become the best in school, the best in sports, and since I was short and kind of built like a rhino. I had to, you know, hit them harder, you know, than others. And, and then you learn, you try to do good at school, and you try to talk some girl into loving you so that you'll affirm yourself, and you move ahead until you try to get out. And even when i looking for people to say, yeah, 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 yeah. And even when I became a Christian, I started a Bible study at the university, and it grew to 600. And I wanted my mom and my dad, they were divorced at this time, but to come and see, and it really grew, and, and in four years, they, they never came once. And you look in your heart, and you say, why we do what we do? Pastor Martin Copenhaver of Wellsea Congregational Church in Massachusetts summarized it great. He said, quote, I lost sight that my parents didn't praise me because of my accomplishments. Rather, they praise my accomplishments because they love me and would have loved me regardless if there had been no accomplishments to praise, unquote. God doesn't praise us because we're disciplined and we don't sin and we don't smoke, drink, or chew or date girls who do. You know, he doesn't applaud because we give our money to him or we're good boys and girls and do hard things or missions. He loves those things, but he would love us if we never did any of those. And this is the revelation of Paul, that no matter what he does, that God will always love them. God is a God of justice, boy. Nobody talks about justice like the Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, except Jesus. But he's a God of love. 
I was told of a gentleman who was trying going for a raise, and his wife was all excited. They were praying because it was going to be a 30% raise in income. He'd finally get to be up in management. And he applied for this position, and she said, why don't we meet for dinner afterwards at a place and celebrate? And so he went to work, and she sat down at the table. When he came walking to their favorite restaurant, she had a little rose and a little candle there, and she said, did you get the job? And he said, I got it. And she reached in her purse and brought out a card and it opened it and it said, congratulations, hon. I always knew you would. So they dined a little bit and she said, I need to use the restroom. And she left and stepped away. He looked at her purse and he noticed there was another card in there. <laughs> and he opened it and it said, who cares, you'll get a better job later. <laughs> God doesn't love us because of how we perform. We're not spiritual chimps trying to earn God's love. We are literally his daughter, his son. And this world needs to know that. We love them, we help them, we help them with medicine and education, even our enemies. We reach out to them and care, but we tell them about Christ. Let me ask you right now, what stage, maybe you're at Saul the Defiant Zealot, you're really dedicated and you're fighting for the right. Well, that's good. Be very careful, though, that you're not outside of God. Maybe God's going to have to, if you haven't given your life to the Lord, you can do this the easy way or the hard way, but you're going to do this. God doesn't have to knock you off your horse and blind you if you're willing to let him get your attention. He'll do that if he loves you. Maybe some of us have been knocked down and life has broken our heart from a relationship or a job or cancer in our bodies or whatever. We're saying, I never thought that. Well, when you're blind and you don't know what's going on, say, Lord, what should I do? And he'll take you by the hand. And maybe the Lord's trying to restore some of us. He wants to give you a new name written across your forehead like Revelation says that no man knows but him. You are so precious to him. The name that when we get there, it'll finally make sense when he calls you by it. And he asks us, as Paul said, sitting in prison, one thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting, forgetting, forgetting what lies behind, let it go, and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press forward for the goal, for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who have grown up have the same mind. Smart man. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you that you have raised up men and women and probably some of the greatest saints we'll not ever hear about until we're gathered in glory and we can look back at how you use them. Lord, I pray if there are any in this room right now that they have been fighting you, that they would stop right now. That if you've been aware of another voice besides mine tugging at your heart, you don't need to get knocked off your feet to come to Christ. You just have to say, Christ, I believe you shed your blood on that cross for me. And when you cried out, it is finished. You paid for everything I have ever done or ever will do. Lord, I don't understand it all, but I want to surrender to you. I take all I know of me and I give it to all I know of you. Come and live in my life. And you do that at this moment, not tomorrow, right now. You'll be his forever. Thank you, God. It's such good news. We can't even get our arms around it. Thank you for putting your arms around us. And Lord, as we go into this busted, wacky city, God, 
May we go with such love and joy and peace that they'll ask and we can point to the Savior. And so, Lord, we come before you with our tithes and our offerings. Use them for the glory of Jesus and the blessing of his church. For his sake we pray. Amen.